Amen. There are few passages of Scripture more significant than what we've just heard. And it's nice to hear the whole context. Turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 again this morning. And we're camping out on chapter 3, verse 8 for a little while. Uh, We have this wonderful list of adjectives describing what we ought to be as as God's people. And after Peter had addressed us believers, addressing believers as citizens, servants, wives, husbands, Peter addresses all of us as members of the church, members of the Christian community there in verse 8. And it reads like this, verse 8, Finally, all of you, okay, so that that includes everybody, uh, all of us, finally, all of you, Be of one mind, that was the first trait. Be of one mind. Two, having sympathy for one another. Three, love as brothers and sisters. Four, be compassionate or tender-hearted. Five, be humble. So there you go. You know, you don't need a lot. You know, one verse can transform your entire life. <laughs> you realize the impact of those five things? If you take those five things, you get up tomorrow morning and you say, those are the five things I want to do today. Whatever else I do, I want to be of a peacemaker. I want to be of one mind. Whatever else I do, I want to show sympathy. For someone. Whatever else I do, I want to love my brothers and sisters. Whatever else I do, I want to be compassionate. Whatever else I do, I want to be humble. How's that? There's more in verses uh, 9 and 10, but we're not there yet. Uh, You know, don't keep running off. Um, Sometimes we're like, we, we expect to change like taking a drug or popping a pill or something. And, and we read the Bible that way. We just run off. We run from thing to thing to thing on the Bible. And we never stop. And I'm making us stop on these five things for a while. They can change your life. And, and, and that's how Christ says it. So we have these five exhortations. They apply to everyone in the believing community, regardless of your roles, genders, relations to one another. All five of these traits have to do with how we interact with others in the body of Christ. There's no room for isolationism here. You can't do any of these five things by yourself. I've said that enough. The relationship between members of the church is absolutely crucial to our Lord. And if you don't think it is, read John chapter 17 as he prays for his people. Just like you and your family, you're distressed if your children are at each other's throats. Isn't that hard as parents? Isn't that difficult? Well, Jesus feels that way about his church. Okay. So these things are for, for all of us. Two weeks ago, we considered sympathy for one another. You know, God has created us with the ability to enter into the feelings and the emotions of others. It's an amazing thing the way we are created. Okay? In other words, you can be under sorrow and grief and I can come alongside of you and I can begin to sorrow and grieve with you. 
I can have that emotion alongside of you. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's costly. It's costly, right? I don't want to share the emotion of the people that are, you know, on a high. Oh, it's great to share their emotion, right? (laughs) But God calls us to share both. Sympathy is really both. We often think about it on the... the, the sorrow side, but it's both. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's, that's sympathy. Wonderful thing. Uh, we were exhorted there to love as brothers and sisters. And that exhortation doesn't mean love as if you were brothers and sisters. No, the truth is we are brothers and sisters and we are to love as brothers and sisters. And the reason we're brothers and sisters is because we've all been born of the same Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope. We are brothers and sisters because we're all born from the same Father. And that we're born from the same seed, aren't we? The Word of God is the seed. We're all born from the same Father. We're born from the same seed. And when you're born from the same seed, let me tell you, you're brothers and sisters, correct? (laughs) I mean, use a physical analogy, right? If you're born from the same seed, you are brothers and sisters. And we are. And therefore, we are to love one another There's this indissolvable connection which exists between every true Christian. That's right. For we all have the same Father. Now, fourth, the fourth adjective, or the fifth, depending on whether you include the first or not. The fourth is compassion. In verse 8, we looked at that two weeks ago. Finally, all of you be compassionate. And the term derives from a Greek word, splanka. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but means your inner organs, okay? The old uh, King James, the bowels of mercy, <laughs> okay, that expression. Your guts, all right? And this word comes from this term that talks about your innards. And it conveys it deep, intense emotion. Such an intense emotion affects your innards. Okay, we all know that unless you're a stone, okay? And, you know, we can be stones at times. <laughs> but compassion, it, it phys- we're physically affected when we exercise compassion. So, the verb is found in a number of places. It's found in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came, came where he was, where the man who was left half dead, Samaritan comes across this man, and there he is, unconscious, and he's half dead. And the text in Jesus' parable says, And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Okay, the other three men, they pass right by him. And the only way they could pass right by him is to have no compassion. Okay, they're cold, they pass right by him. This guy did something because he felt something. Okay? He did something because he felt something. 
Okay? That's compassion. Compassion will motivate you to do something for others who are suffering. So we come now to our final term. And since I didn't finish two weeks ago, we can expand on this one some more. (laughs) And that final term is humility. Now there's a textual variant here. And we're going with humility. All right? So we're going with humility So we have this. Finally, finally, all of you, be humble. Now, Paul has a list, just like Peter, very similar. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to jump over to Paul with this similar expression. And it's in his exhortation to humility. And it figures large in Ephesians 4, verse 2. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness. So he urges us to walk worthy of the calling and then he gives a list of things that are a worthy walk. And the first one on the list is our subject for today. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness that heads his list of walking worthy we're going to meditate on this together so Paul sets down what the great characteristics of our lives should be we should live in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called that's the great principle That's the great principle. The principle is expressed in the New Testament multiple times. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He prays for the Colossians that that they may walk worthy of the Lord. Paul reminds the Thessalonians... You know how we exhorted every one of you that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. That's the great principle. You and I are to walk, we are to live worthy of these great gospel truths. And and we mentioned like about four of them here. You see, there, there should be a consistency between God's calling and the way we live. Has God called us as sons? Then we should act like sons of the Most High. Has God called us to a glorious hope? Then we should not be given over to despair, but live in hope. Has God called us to be saints? Well, you know He has. What? Then we should be holy. That's the idea of walking worthy of what we've been called to. Our life and actions should be consistent with this calling of God upon us. So, the calling we are to walk worthy of What does that calling mean? What is this calling? 
That calling is that God exercises, He exerts His power upon us that we are brought to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's the calling. The calling's not your job description. The calling is God exercising His power on your life and calling you to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the calling of these passages. Okay? That's the calling. 1 Peter 2.9 Him who what? Called you out of darkness. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. He called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's the calling. There you sat in a darkened life. There you sat ignoring God in the dark, loving sin, going your own way. All we like sheep have gone everyone his own way. There you sat in darkness. And what did God do? He called you. He exerted His mighty arm and He called you out of that darkness. There you sat enslaved to sin just like the Israelites in Egypt. (laughs) And what did God do? He called them out of that bondage and slavery. Okay? So... Blessed be God, Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Colossians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called, listen to this, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. I spent 22 years of my life having nothing to do with Him. I'd never sit down at the same table as that man, with that man. And what does God do? He calls us what? Into the fellowship of His beloved Son. Isn't that amazing? We love the darkness. God called us out of the darkness. And what does He do with us? He calls us into the fellowship. Of His beloved Son. That's the calling. Collage, uh, 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren. It doesn't mean consider your job. It means consider the type of people that God called into fellowship with His Son. Consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. (laughs) It didn't call very many proud people, all right? (laughs) Not many mighty. He didn't call very many strong people. Not not many mighty. Consider your calling, brethren. Look at you guys. You know, you look like a bunch of weaklings. Consider your calling, not not many mighty, not many noble. I don't know I don't know any princes among us. I got burned on the per, on the pearls, but <laughs> but I don't think any of you are princes or princesses, okay? Now I know you ladies want to be treated that way, but <laughs> but but not many noble. He didn't call very many noble. Not not many of those are called, okay? Not many are called, but 
God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the, the, to put to shame the things which are mighty. God, and God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And this is my favorite. And God has chosen the things which are not. Okay. The things which are not, why? To bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Okay. So this is the kind of calling we're talking about, where God calls the fools and the weak and the despised ones, and He calls them into fellowship with Jesus Christ His Son. And He calls them out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the calling. Now the first thing we ought to do to walk worthy of this calling is to live in all lowliness. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.2. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. First on the list, humility with all lowliness. That is the appropriate attitude and heart in view of this calling. Okay? I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And what does that look like? Walk with all lowliness. Not some. All. It is in the text. He puts the word all right there. Not some humility, but all lowliness. Okay? Wherever you are, whatever relationship you're in, whatever you're doing, Humility is appropriate. Have you thought about that? Whatever relationship you're in, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, humility is appropriate because God has called you into the fellowship of His Son. Okay? And you are to be like Him. You think Jesus turned humility on and off? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Jesus never turned humility on and off. Absolutely not. Walk with... You are called with all humility. Humility of mind. ESV translates it that way. There's some... There's some mental emphasis here. Humility of mind. When God calls us into fellowship with His Son, He leads us to think differently. He leads us to think truthfully about ourselves in relation to Him and in relation to others. That's humility. Humility of mind. We begin to think truthfully about ourselves in relation to God. And we go, you know, you're right, Paul. We're not wise. We're not strong. We are despised. We are foolish. You're right. 
I never thought that way before, but I do now. I do now think that way. Humility of mind. I'm ashamed of what I used to be. I used to glory in my sin. And now, you know what? I'm ashamed of it. I'm humbled. I blush. I blush before God in the face of His mercy and goodness to me. That's humility. That's lowliness. That's a mark of conversion. There is a great consistency between God calling us and our living in humility. When He calls us, He first reveals to us our sinfulness and our rebellion, as I've been saying. At this point, He makes us poor in spirit. Right? Are you a Christian? Read the Beatitudes. There's the marks of the people that have entered the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay? So when He calls us, He shows us our spiritual bankruptcy. We see our poverty in the light of His perfection and holiness. We see how appropriately we fit those Pauline categories, foolish, base, weak. But, now listen, true humility does not come until we have a sense of forgiveness of all our sins. Okay? That's when true humility comes. When we have a sense of in spite of all we are and all that we've done. You know what God does? He forgives you. He forgives you. That's the transition to gospel humility. He forgives you. You're, you're in front of Him and your face is blushing red because you are ashamed at what you've done. And the Lord sees that repentance, right? That's part of repentance. There's sorrow. There's a godly sorrow. Oh God, I'm sorry for what I have done. And you know what He does? He forgives you. He forgives you! You know, have you ever really been nasty to someone? Okay? And they turn around and they're nice to you. And they forgive you. If you're a half human, it makes you feel like a quarter inch tall. You've been a jerk. And they turn around and do an act of kindness. And they forgive you and don't return evil for evil. And, 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 and you feel a quarter inch tall if you're even half human. 
Well, God does that with us a thousand degrees over. And so this matter of humility, yes, we need to know our poverty of spirit. But true humility comes when we receive a sense of our forgiveness of all our sins. And that new covenant experience is described so powerfully in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's graphic. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's God's new covenant mercy to Israel, to new covenant Israel. And we're saved the same way, okay? That salvation that is described of God calling Israel to repentance and forgiving her in Ezekiel chapter 16, that's the exact same mercy we, we receive. We're grafted into those promises. And in that chapter... God describes Israel initially as unclean, as a baby that is born in all of its blood, and nobody took care of it. It's graphic. And that's a description of Israel in her sin. And 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 it's just graphic. And and it reaches it reaches this point. I'll read just a few verses from there. And, and God promises mercy. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And that's the covenant in Christ's blood that we celebrate every month. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And look at how this works. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. Okay? You'll re- if, you're, if you're a member of that new covenant... You are ashamed. If you're a member of that new covenant, and you've entered into that new covenant, then what? I'll establish a new covenant with you. And what will be the experiential result? This is important. The experiential result of being in that covenant is you will remember your ways and be ashamed. Okay? And some of you know why I'm emphasizing that. There's no evidence that you're in that covenant until you experience this. Yeah, I'm passionate about that. It's important. There's no evidence that you're in this covenant until you experience what this passage describes. I'll establish that covenant with you and here's going to be the result. When I establish that covenant with you, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the second thing in your experience if you are in this covenant. You're ashamed. Why? Because you now realize that Yahweh is the true God. That I am the Lord. And he does this, what? That you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore. That sounds to me like Romans three nineteen through 20. The law came with that your mouth will be shut. Your mouth will be shut. And you're no longer going to excuse yourself. You're no longer going to go after false gods and all the rest. And you'll never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. And now what is it that ultimately brings a closed mouth? Listen to this. You will 
and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when, when I provide you an atonement for all you have done. There. That final mouth-shutting shame comes when Yahweh says, here, here's an atonement for you. You ultimately, your mouth will shut when you understand Christ crucified for you. Christ crucified. I will provide an atonement. This is new covenant. Christ is the Lamb, isn't He? And what does that do, you see? That's my point. Humility, gospel humility only comes when you have the realization that God has provided this atonement for you in spite of all that you've done. That's gospel humility. It's a secure place. And you know what? Your mouth gets reopened. And you begin to sing and worship this Savior. Okay? That's gospel humility. All that is. When I provide you an atonement for some of your sins? (laughs) No, 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 no. When I provide you an atonement for all you have done. And don't let anybody in this building despair. I don't need to know what all your sins are. And you don't need to know mine. But I can tell you, in Jesus Christ, there is an atonement provided for all your sin. That's right. So, we are humbled, you see, not only by a sense of our unworthiness, but while unworthy being called to receive forgiveness that is so great and blessings that are so great that their value cannot be expressed in words. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. We receive, not not only do we get forgiveness, we receive blessings beyond imagination. That should humble us. Okay. Now, we learn a lot about what humility looks like from the Incarnation also, don't we? We learn a lot from the Incarnation. Christ emptying Himself described in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus set aside His divine rights. And the more our culture pushes rights... Don't, I, I can't say everything, but let me tell you, the more you insist on your rights, the more conflict you are going to have. Because you're not humble. Christ laid aside His rights. Correct? 
He, he, he should have been honored and, and worshipped and everything. He, he, he should have been the object of praise and honor and worship all the time. He, he's God in human flesh. And so what does he do? He lays aside all of those rights and comes and serves and doesn't insist on those rights. That's humility. Lane, that's why pride stirs up strife. Why? Because everybody's dug in insisting on their rights. We're to be different because Christ is different. Yes, the incarnation. He set aside His divine rights. He made Himself of no reputation on our account. Oh, how often. I wonder what they thought of me. <laughs> I, wonder what they, I wonder what they thought of our church. <sighs> you know what we need to think? I wonder what they thought about Jesus Christ as a result of visiting our church. Huh? All this stuff goes deep. Oh, we have visitors. Some of you are visiting this morning. Oh, what do the visitors think of our church? You know what I'm more concerned about? As a result of somebody being in this church, what are they thinking about Jesus Christ as a result of being here? That's what I want them to go away here thinking about. Yeah, it's great that you all are friendly and oftentimes they think about that. But if they don't go away from here thinking more about who Jesus is, God help us. Right? We want them to know who Jesus is. We want them to come into this place and leave and start thinking about Jesus. That's what we want. And if we're not... We got a problem. Okay, I'm I'm challenging us. Okay, I want to discourage you. But this humility thing is big. And Jesus sets aside his rights, and he's not worried about his reputation. He made himself of no account. He made no account of himself. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, what, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. B.B. Warfield said humbling ourselves is, quote, not to degrade ourselves, but to forget ourselves. Oh, isn't that good? Humility is not to degrade ourselves. We have dignity by the very fact we're created in God's image. Humility is not to degrade ourselves, but to forget ourselves. But to forget ourselves. Not to be caught up thinking if we are receiving the honor we think we deserve. So humbling ourselves is a self forgetfulness while serving others a self-forgetness while serving others and that is to walk worthy 
of the gospel with which we've been called. That's consistent behavior with this great calling of what God has called you to be and, 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 and what the power He has exerted in calling you to be that. So let's summarize and consider a few applications. So, Jesus Christ embodies all four of these traits. And He also enables His followers to do them also. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate. And be of a humble mind. And we should associate doing those four things. We should associate them with following Christ. How do I follow Christ? By doing those four things the way He did. Okay, you're not... You're not a moralist. You're not just finding out the right set of rules to obey. You're following this glorious Savior. And like a little child, you want to be like Him. Okay? You're serving the, 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 the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that, that redeemed you out of that darkness. You see, you're following. I, I love that expression. It makes it personal. I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be His disciples. Go make disciples. What does that mean? Make followers of Jesus. So think in those terms. Doing these things is following Christ in His steps. Contemplate the example of your master. And I'm going to run through four. Sympathy. That was the first one. Sympathy. Now listen to this. When God designed our redemption, He planned that we would be saved by a sympathetic Savior. His own Son. Is that true? That is true. When God designed our redemption, He planned that you would be saved by a sympathetic Savior, His own Son. Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. You need to hold on to that. You have a Savior that sympathizes with all your suffering and with all our temptations. Because He was incarnated and He had to be made that way. And, and the author of Hebrews is explaining why Messiah suffered. You know why He suffered? So He could be sympathetic with you in your suffering. These things are real. He designed our redemption that way. This is... Oh, we beat up on doctors all the time. 
I think they're both here this morning. This is not, you know, the mechanical, the mechanical doctor that comes into the room and, you know, there you are, you know, whatever, and, and he's just a machine, all right? We, we, we love you guys, okay? We, you need to be a machine at times, okay? But, but, but this physician, this great physician, sympathizes with all of us. Okay. And God planned it that way. Sympathy. <clears throat> love as brothers. We can go to Hebrews again. Love, one, love as brothers. You, you think Jesus loves you as brother? Oh, yes, he does. Yes, yes, he does. For both he who sanctifies, referring to Jesus, I'm reading out of Hebrews 2 again, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. Jesus calls you his brother. And ladies, Jesus calls you his sister. And he's not ashamed to do that. Think about that. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. I'll own them. I'll I'll own him. I'll own Dan as my brother. Whoa! See, he does all of these things. Love as brothers and sisters. He does that. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. If the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters... And he is busy revealing God's name to them. I will declare God's name to them. And if he's not ashamed to call us those things, his brethren, then how can we possibly feel the same way towards our brothers? How can we not feel the same way toward our brothers and sisters? I admit, you know... (laughs) See what I'm saying? If he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, then how can we not feel the same way toward all of the people in the body of Christ? Hey, that's challenging. If Jesus calls them brothers and sisters, and they are, and that involves that affectionate bond, of course it does then how can we not pursue the same with all of our brothers and sisters? So, then there's the compassion. The gospel commands us, freely you have received, freely give. You and I have received the Father's compassion, haven't we? His innards move toward you and I as the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. 
when the father saw him from a great distance returning. And what's that? What's the word? What's happening there? The father sees way down there. He sees his son coming back. What's his son doing? Begins with an R. Repenting. His son's repenting. Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The father sees his son over there. And he can tell probably just by the way he's walking. Right? He's, he's coming back. He's not going really fast. And, and, he's, and he's drooped down. You know, he can just tell. This is a broken man. My son is emotionally broken. I know him. I know how he walks. And the father sees afar off. His son, what? Is coming back. That's repentance. And what does the text say? And he felt compassion. And he goes out and runs on the road to greet his son. Throws his arms around him and begins to kiss him. He felt compassion. And Jesus said, this is a perfect representation of his father. That's why I said the father's innards were moved to save us. Compassion. And Jesus, of course, feels the same way. Finally, the fourth thing here, humility. Who is there who is there who forgot himself his rights, his deserved honor, more than Jesus. Is there anyone that forgone, forwent, I don't know the grammar there, forgone or forwent his rights more than Jesus? Nobody. Nobody even comes close when it comes to humility. And he has, an, he's deserving of infinite worth and honor. And he wasn't even sinful. You see, being, being humble isn't, in, in exec, isn't entirely connected with being sinful. Jesus was not sinful. But he was entirely humble, wasn't he? Absolutely. Nobody more humble than him. So he has shown, he has shown us. So I conclude by saying this. I'm not urging you to practice some high moral ethic. I'm urging you to admire the Lord Jesus and to follow Him. Alright? That's what I'm doing. I'm urging you to admire Father and Son and follow the Son. Don't excuse your pride And I would urge you, and I'd especially urge you younger ones, but all of us, the next fight you get into, (laughs) the next time there's strife, I would urge you to look here as to the deeper solution. Okay? I really would. And you're all proud. We all are. 
We are born that way. Okay? And it doesn't go out easy. But by the power of God's grace, it does go out. Let's pray. Lord, you have, you have constructed so great a salvation for us at an unimaginable cost to yourself. And you've loved us. And that love has overflowed in serving us at your infinite father-son expense. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the magnitude and the greatness of who you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, really are. Thank you for this opportunity to be reminded through the praises we've sung. Thank you for these wonderful themes in your word that you've given to us, whereby we may know you. We just, we don't know what to say, Lord. Make us more grateful than we are. And may your Holy Spirit enliven your word in our minds and hearts. And may he take, Lord, may your spirit take as you promise the things that belong to you and disclose them and reveal them to us. And Father, we do ask you to forgive us when we've thought so little of you. And we ask you to forgive us when we run off to idols to find our hope or whatever we're looking for. Oh God, forgive us for those wayward urges in our hearts. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, because you called us to come. We thank you for your unconditional invitation to come. We come to you, O oh Father, in Jesus' name alone. We pray in his name. Amen.